a greeting as well to each and every one of you in the sanctuary, those of you who have chosen to join with us online. We welcome you on this Lord's Day. I'd invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. My text is from the 27th verse, 1 Corinthians 11. <coughs> Verse number 27, the word of God says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Again, this is God's word. I'd like to start by saying why I've chosen this text uh, to talk about this morning. I think it behooves all who come behind this sacred pulpit and deliver the word of God to evaluate their own hearts and motivations and to speak with love and a clear conscience. And I, as much as grace has permitted, I'm doing that. Therefore, I plead with you not to read into this message today in the sense that I'm addressing this to one person or a group of people or one cause in fact, my motivation to draw your attention to this passage particularly was <coughs> birthed a few weeks ago when the sermon was on the prayer of Jesus for oneness. To be quite honest and open with you, I don't think we've mined the depths of what Jesus prayed for it's very easy to use the word unity because whether it's intended or not, when people talk about unity, they talk about feelings. And oneness has very little to do with feelings. It has a lot to do with reality of how we're living our lives and the choices we make. And it seemed natural as we would designate this Sunday as the Lord's table and speak so clearly of oneness. If you glance back a chapter to chapter 10, verse 16, chapter 10, verse 16, you read these words, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of the Lord? A blood of Christ, the bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? And because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So not only was I deeply affected by the prayer of Jesus, I believe that it is the word one and oneness is the very essence of why we gather this morning as 
Christians. And thirdly, I've been repeatedly troubled by the way we approach the Lord's table. I do not blame a single individual for that. That is entirely on my shoulders. But I believe it's so easy to approach the table of the Lord with a sense of casualness, a sense of just another celebration, another event. I believe that the table of the Lord has been instituted within his divine wisdom so that the church might gather regularly and preach the gospel to ourselves. I get that in chapter 11, verse 26. I think it's necessary for Christians to not only preach the gospel to themselves every day and many times a day, but it's, it's worthy of a church to gather on mass on one and to hear the gospel proclaimed as it affects our lives. But the part I think that I've been negligent in is leading you in the second aim, I think, why God has instituted the Lord's table is that it's supposed to be a time for corporate cleansing to be a time where we evaluate ourselves. It's a time for a monthly or bi-monthly or weekly, depending on the tradition of the church, time for a tune-up and a heart check. And any church that fails to do that is going to find themselves wander and language into relationships that are skewed and rife with conflict and harboring bitterness and self-centeredness. So for those three reasons, that is why we are taking a few moments before the Lord's table to consider this passage. And the text I read is rather disconcerting, I think, if you think about it, looking at it again. Join me as I read the whole paragraph get a sense of what Paul is saying to the church. Again, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And I'll stop there. You'll see that Paul goes on to apply that 
to the church at Corinth. In fact, that's Paul's approach, one would think, in this passage. He's established a theological principle for the Lord's table, and having established that, then he he he, he pushes that, as you will. He, he 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 forces that upon the church at Corinth, and said, "If that's true, then this is what you ought to be doing." Corinth had a reputation for sexual immorality. Corinth had a reputation for pluralism. Every different view of every religion and philosophy was present in Corinth. And there's a view that everybody was right. Corinth had a had a reputation for being corrupt through and through all its institutes and its government. And you might wonder if Paul might have written to Canada today and not Corinth. That should be expected of the world. Nobody should rise up in a ghast and say, oh my goodness, there's sexual immorality in the world. Nobody should rise up in just absolute uh, uh, um, surprise that there's pluralism in the world and nobody should even consider it any element of surprise that the world systems are corrupt. The problem of Corinth and the problem that we face today is Corinth was becoming part of the church. And the world can easily become part of the church. We can entertain sexual immorality in our churches now, and we can entertain things like like, uh, divisiveness and party spirits in our church now, and we can even do things in corrupt and deceptive ways and nobody notices any difference because that's the way the world does it. Paul is trying to correct that. He addresses many issues, but the one that we're dealing with, the question that he's dealing with in this text is the way they were eating and drinking the Lord's table together. And so as I said, he, he gives a theological position and then he applies it to the church. That's exactly what I hope to do this morning. And I do need to speed up a bit. I want you first of all to notice what the problem is. And you should have your Bibles open. You'll be using them a lot in the next 10 minutes. I want you to notice what the problem is. Look at verse 27 and 29. Verse 27 and 29. Paul says that this group is eating and drinking the Lord's table together in an unworthy manner. And in 29, he repeats it. Uh, You ought to see this. This is a parallel thought. He repeats it in verse 29 without discerning the body. Now you need to know those are two thoughts that are equal in understanding. To eat in an unworthy way is to eat without discernment towards the body of Christ. Now I'm going to unpack that as best I can, but I want you to start by noticing the problem. 
The Lord's table is just not an ordinary event. It's a sacred time. It's a celebration where the one cup and the one loaf symbolize the truth that Jesus Christ came and died to create a people who are one. In other words, to participate in the Lord's table and not recognize the uniqueness of the church, to participate in the Lord's table and not recognize the eternal value of the body of Christ, to not discern it properly, to not look at it biblically, is to take the Lord's table in an unworthy way. Do you see that? It all has to do with your view of the body of Christ, the church, and my view. And to look at and handle and to assess and interact with the body of Christ in a way that is less than what the Scripture prescribes is unworthy. To mean you're unworthy. The way you do it is unworthy. That's the problem. It's desecrating what is holy. Think back in the Bible with some of the stories you know. For a Christian church to gather and participate in the Lord's table in a way that, that does not recognize the eternal uniqueness of the body of Christ and how we're to in, be involved in it is, is desecrating what is holy. Let me use some biblical metaphors. It is offering strange fire to the Lord. It is touching the ark in an unholy way. It is lying to the Holy Spirit. What was the effect of this problem in Corinth? Well, you see that in verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. The discipline of the Lord was happening in real time to these folks. It was a discipline of grace, if we notice verse 32. God was getting involved in their lives through sickness and illness and even death so that they wouldn't be condemned with the rest of the world. What was happening? God was being graceful to this group of people. Sickness and death doesn't sound like grace, but it was full of grace, so they would not be condemned. So these things were going on in the church, and the church wasn't connecting the dots. The church wasn't saying, why are so many people sick? Why are so many people ill? Why are so? Why have we encompassed so many, uh, encountered so many deaths? Nobody was connecting the dots. No one was saying, "Well, hold it." Maybe this is the discipline of the Lord. Now, sickness and death is not always discipline, is it? You know that. I hope. I hope you understand that. Just because every time someone 
as a cough or a sneeze or sickness. It isn't God disciplining. But Paul had apostolic insight into this church, what we, you and I don't have. He had apostolic insight. He had the Holy Spirit's unmediated direct power to say, what's going on here has to do with the way you're conducting the Lord's table. He was not like Job's comforters. Job's comforters kept coming to Job and saying, the reason you're going through this is because you have sin in your life. And they had no idea why Job was going through that. You and I know the whole story. And we know that those comforters were wrong. But Paul wasn't wrong here. He had apostolic insight, something that I don't have and you don't have. He had insight. He was able to peer through the eyes of the Holy Spirit into the church and say, you know why this is rampant sickness? Because of the Lord's table. We don't connect sickness immediately with God's discipline. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't sometimes. You hear me? We don't immediately connect sickness with God's discipline, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't consider it. Well, why is this so serious? Why are people dying? Well, the answer is found in verse 27 in the last part. Because what you're doing makes you guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. Well, let's not rush through this very quickly because we need to consider this for a minute. What is Paul saying? Is he actually saying what he appears to be saying? That when we don't discern the body of Christ, the church, in a proper way, are we actually guilty about actually violating the very body of Christ that hung on the cross? Is that what you're saying, Paul? And I would argue, indeed, he is. Let me put this in plain English. When a person violates the church, the body of Christ, it is tantamount to a person violating the very body of Jesus that hung on a tree for our sins. That's how serious this is. You say, that's crazy, Jim. I can't believe that. Really? Remember Paul's conversion? Saul's conversion? The Lord says to Saul, why? Why? Why are you persecuting me? I'm not persecuting you, Lord. I'm persecuting your church. Ah, but Paul, when you persecute the church, you're persecuting me. And the same principle applies when we violate unbiblically the body of Christ and we treat the body of Christ in ways that are not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures, it's as if we are attacking the very body, the flesh and blood that hung on the cross 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why it's so serious. So what are we to do? 
We've looked at the problem. We've looked at the effect of the problem. We've understood, I hope, why it's so serious. What are we to do? Well, in that whole paragraph that I read, and you read along with me, we found that there's only one imperative. There's only one command in the text. And we find it in verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let a person examine himself. Right away, we have to be careful not to examine the person beside you. Isn't that easy? Isn't it so terribly easy to look at the person just in front of you or just beside you or up in the pulpit or down in the pew and say, I'd rather examine them. (laughs) But that's not what Paul wrote. He said, let let a man examine himself. The Greek text is very interesting. It says, let a man examine himself. There's no wiggle room. This is the antidote to the problem. Self-examination. And we're to examine ourselves mostly on a horizontal level. The emphasis of the passage is such that we are to mostly examine ourselves in relation to our treatment of the body of Christ. Unless you think that this is a a, a huge, mystical, universal problem, it is not. Ladies and gentlemen, you are now gathered with the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says clearly, this is this gathering right now this morning is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is the body of Christ. And I don't think we can make it any clearer to say is that my responsibility in the next few minutes is to ask God the Holy Spirit What is my relationship like with the body of Christ? Do I hold the members of the body of Christ in that unique value, men and women whom you have loved and died for? It means that we have to think about and evaluate our horizontal relationships with one another one another, our actions towards one another. How have we been acting towards one another? What has been our attitude to one another? As I said at the beginning, in summary, it's to do a heart check. We are to approach the Lord's table with a holy, honorable appreciation rightly discerning who the church is. We're not to approach with ongoing dissension between us. It is better we do not participate. We're not to approach with ongoing division between us. 
it is better we do not participate. We are to approach with no contempt, no conflict. God treats this seriously. We may not be dealing with sickness or death, but please understand that God deals with this seriously. In other words, the Holy Spirit is saying to us, those who do violence to my body, the church, it is tantamount to doing violence to the very flesh and blood of Christ on Calvary's cross. If I were to spear you this morning with an unkind word, it's as if I was throwing a javelin into the side of our Savior. So we are to carefully examine ourselves to ensure that we're not numbered among those who do such things. We're to make sure we're not hypocrites saying that we belong to Christ and we love Christ, but we live in contempt and division and resentment and bitterness to his body. So how does one do that thing? I'm not a fan of the mystical treatment of such things. I'm not a fan of these things. I'm not a fan of going on to up to a mountain and emptying my brain, which is not difficult at the most of times, and thinking that God is going to somehow fill it with inspired thought. I am a fan of using God's word to evaluate. James calls it a mirror. A mirror. You have your Bibles open as I asked you to. Notice that in the very next chapter, in the very next chapter, in chapter 12, Paul talks about the one body and we being members of the one body. And then over in chapter 13, you would expect wedding bells to be ringing, but they're not. You actually find that the chapter has nothing to do with weddings or marriages. It has to do with our relationship to one another. And in verse 4, we read words like love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And love bears all things and believes all things, and hopes all things, endures all things. So I would suggest to you as your pastor that 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and following, would be a wonderful reflection during our time of examination that we have before taking the Lord's table. And how about just opening the pages of your Bible and saying, Lord, have I been patient? Have I been kind? Have I been boasting? 
Have I been arrogant? We also see, if we turn to, let me just find it here, over a few pages to Ephesians 4, Galatians, Ephesians chapter 4. Pastor Josh dealt with this a few weeks ago in our presence. Paul starts with a call to unity in the church. And then he says, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing one with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. There's one body and one spirit, just as you who are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. You see, folks, this isn't something impractical. As we examine ourselves this morning, if you don't want to turn to 1 Corinthians 13, you could turn to Ephesians 4. And you could look at Ephesians 4 and say, have I been dealing with the church with all humility? Have I been gentle? Patient? Have I been bearing with one another's weakness and idiosyncrasies and difficulties? The King James used the word long-suffering. Have I been suffering long? How about, have I been eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Have my words, have my actions, have my, my social media presence, my correspondence, have they been driven by the intent to unify the church or they have been driven by the intent to divide the church? You could go to Philippians, the very next book in chapter 2. I'm sitting in the presence of the Lord, and I'm saying, Lord, I need to examine myself. I need to examine myself. I dare not take this table without examining myself. And I read these words in verse 2. Complete my joy by, I'm chapter 2, verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's a hammer blow. Do I consider other people more significant than me? Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but the interests of others. We don't have to guess how to question ourselves and examine ourselves. We don't have to guess. Let's just do one more. Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. Verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, 
meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. I would suspect that here you see more clearly Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 11. If I'm unwilling to forgive a brother or sister in the body of Christ, how can I possibly expect the forgiveness of my dying, hanging Savior from the cross? How can I possibly expect that? So folks, I'm sorry that I have not emphasized this as I should. But now the time has come. Let a man examine himself. And then so let him partake of the Lord's table. I don't want any music at this point. I'm going to invite you to open your Bible to one of those passages. I can remind you of them if you wish. 1 Corinthians 13 or Ephesians 4 or Philippians 2.3 or Colossians 3.12. And I'm going to ask us to quietly examine our hearts before the Lord. And then when I believe it's time to stop, I'll lead in prayer, and then I'll ask the musicians to lead us in a song as we prepare to join at the table. When there's quietness in a sanctuary, it sometimes feels nervous. Don't feel nervous. This is serious business. Now I would ask you to just go to God's word alone. Examine yourself. And then at the appropriate time, I'll lead us in a word of prayer of confession. Let's all go to the Lord together. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Gracious Father, we have already seen the merciful kindness and graciousness 
of your heart in this text. It is not your will that we would be judged with the world. It is your will that we examine ourselves and judge ourselves so that we will not be condemned. We're so thankful, Lord, that as we confess our sins, we can count on your faithfulness, your justice, to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The words come from a letter of John where his goal and aim is, he says, I write these things that you might have joy. Now, Lord, as we approach your table, grant your people joy. Joy in knowing that we are completely justified and free of all condemnation. Joy of knowing that the imputed righteousness of Christ to us enables the divine judge of all to see the life that Christ lived. He lived in our place. Thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ who conquered sin and death. Therefore, sin shall no longer have dominion over us. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who does not reside in our hearts as a passive visitor, but who is actively conforming us to the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, that your Son has ascended to heaven and is sitting at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Thank you that he is coming again to claim us to be for his own. And at the time of the trumpet sounding, the dead in Christ will rise first, and all yet who are alive will be gathered together to be forever with the Lord. May we encourage each other, Father, by, with these words. Grant to us joy unspeakable as we again recognize the invaluable death, the infinite death of Christ on our behalf so that we might live and live more abundantly. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.